for those of you who are joining us, maybe online or in person, we have been in a series called Exiles, and it's been all about the book of Daniel. And today is going to be the last message in this series. Uh, I know, oh, it's sad, but I told everybody at the beginning of this series that the majority, the bulk of this series would be spent in the life of Daniel and in the instruction that is given to God's followers. And, and we've been saying all throughout this book that the book of Daniel is a book of instructions for God's people who are living uh, as foreigners in a land. God, Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, were, were taken from their homeland, were taken from Israel, and they were made captives in Babylon to serve this pagan king, and they had to learn how to live uh, with the convictions that God has placed in their heart, but also thrive in this society that they lived in. And so we've been reading about how can we live godly in the midst of a godless world, and how can this book fill us with hope? Well, the, the first half of Daniel is about Daniel's life experiences, but the second half of Daniel, chapters uh, 8 through 12, are Daniel's prophetic dreams and visions. And so uh, we could spend a ton of time on, on these prophetic dreams and visions. In fact, I feel like it needs to be a, a series that, that comes in the future, but also needs to go in conjunction with the book of Revelation and not just the book of Daniel, because Revelation takes a lot of the, of the symbolism. A lot of the things that we see from Daniel is also adapted into the book of Revelation. So this, I think, is going to be saved uh, for a more in-depth, series in the future, but I wanted to, f- to footnote or to, um, to touch a little bit on the last half of Daniel uh, by just talking a little bit about um, the signs and the, um, the indications that Daniel talks about of the end times. And he summarizes these signs, and he summarizes these indications in Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to get to that in just a little bit. But the final chapters of Daniel are prophetic in nature, and they're adapted into the book of Revelation. And Jesus uses uh, the writings of Daniel, the prophetic writings of Daniel, in Matthew chapter 24, when he's speaking privately uh, to his disciples about the end times. So in Matthew 24, verse 3, as Jesus, this is what it says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. And they asked the question that every one of us want to know. Tell us. They said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Isn't this the question that we all want to know? The disciples came and asked the question, when will the end come? What should we look for? What are the signs? And this question has every scholar, has every theologian debating about the signs of the end times and and current world events that we're seeing happening now. Are current world events signs of the end times? Are we coming close to the end? But before we go any further, we have to acknowledge that in this chapter, Matthew 24, Jesus tells his disciples that nobody can predict the second coming of Jesus. If anybody that you're listening to, either on YouTube or a prophetic voice or at a a, a different church, is is telling you that they've got the year pinned down, that they know when Jesus is coming back according to the Mayan calendar or whatever, don't listen to them. Because Jesus, he says right here in verse 36 of chapter 24, he says, But about this day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now wait, did you catch that? Jesus says that not even the Son knows. Not even he knows, but this is knowledge that has been reserved 
for God alone. When, when is Jesus coming back? Only God knows. We have to continue reading these kinds of texts with humility and understand that this knowledge is reserved for God alone. However, Jesus answers his disciples' questions by giving them a list of signs and indications of his return. It's like, you know, when you ask the question, when is this avocado going to be rotten in my kitchen? And you can pick it up and you can feel it, right? There are indications. You can touch it. You can smell it sometimes. You know that the end is coming, right? There are, there are indications. There are signs. Maybe that was a terrible example. But there, <laughs> there are signs that we can look to, to to see if we're getting close to the end. And so Jesus responds to his disciples with a list of signs and indications. And I'd encourage you this week, maybe read Matthew chapters 24 and 25 on your own because Jesus talks uh, about the signs of the end times and he talks about how we should live in the meantime in chapter 25. But he summarizes, he concludes this list by saying this in verses 12 through 15 of chapter 24. He says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Jesus himself recognizes Daniel as a prophetic book, and so it's safe to assume that we can use Daniel as a picture to help us figure out what do the signs look like? What, does, what, do the, what are the indications of the end time? In the second half of the book of Daniel, like I said, there's a place in chapter 9 where Daniel summarizes these prophetic visions that he has through chapters 10, 10 through 12, and he explains them by way of what he calls the 77s. 77s. Now, the Hebrew word for 70 is really straightforward. It means 70, seven zero. But the Hebrew word for seven is, is a little bit more difficult. It, it comes, uh, it, it's the Hebrew word shavuah. Everybody say shavuah. Shavuah. And it's, it, it literally means a period of time based on seven increments. And so originally some Bible translators thought this word meant a week, which makes sense because there's seven days in a week. However, when we look back uh, in the context of history and and the events that transpired immediately following this this prophetic vision, we can see that Daniel was describing a period, periods of seven years. And so his summary of what he sees regarding the future comes down to viewing it in 70 different sevens. So Using our multiplication, I'm going to break this down. Using our multiplication, uh, we can see that Daniel is prophetically revealed 70 times 7 years of future events, which is 490 years of future events. And this is how he describes these 77s in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9. Are you there with me? i got to get there too. Here we go. Verse 24 of chapter 9. 77s are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. 
From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So that's kind of confusing. What's interesting about Daniel's list, he talks about wars. He talks about floods. He talks about a ruler that will come and that will cause, he will cause an abomination that causes desolation. And what's interesting about all these lists of signs that we see in both Matthew 24 and in Daniel 9 is that every generation has experienced these signs. Every generation has experienced these signs. It's no wonder that every generation thought that they would see the return of Christ. And if we look back on history, 490 years after Daniel had this, this prophecy, uh, this, this uh, ruler, he was a Syrian king, his name was Antiochus. And in the year 160 B.C., he killed many Jews, many faithful Jews, and he also set up pagan idols in the middle of the temple. He destroyed the temple and in its place put up pagan images. And, and that is what uh, usually when the Bible refers us to uh, abominations, it's referring to a covenantal breaking or a covenantal unfaithfulness. And so um, we can see, uh, we can, a lot of people would see Antiochus as this ruler who after 490 years after this prophecy was the one who came and caused this abomination of desolations where he set up this pagan imagery in Jerusalem and killed many of God's people. And so the people in Antiochus's time would have thought, this is it, this is what Daniel was referring to. But then we see in Matthew 24 that Jesus describes these things once again and jesus looks at all of his listeners and says all of these things will come to pass in your generation he tells the people listening that these lists of signs these things that i've said they will all come they will all take place in your generation so jesus referred to his body as the temple right and then he he constantly told his listeners that uh, that the temple would be destroyed right and in three days, it would be rebuilt. So we can look at the crucifixion of Jesus and what was happening to God's people in the reign of Rome and, and maybe think, well, maybe this is what the Bible was referring to. Maybe the, the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus was the abomination of desolations. And maybe, and maybe uh, the, the killing of God's people around the Roman time is what is referred to here. If I had to guess... Looking back on history, uh, if, if I was part of any generation and, I, and I, if I was convinced that there was an end of the world, it probably would have been around World War II. And many of you might have experienced some of this that are from your parents or maybe you've experienced some of, the, some of the emotions from this. But can you picture an entire world at war, countries all over the world or at war with one another, and then... You throw in a figure like Adolf Hitler, 
who's murdering millions of Jews, millions of God's people. I mean, to me, that would have been a recipe for the end time. If you were living back then, you would have thought, this is it. Hitler is the Antichrist. This is the end of the world. Every generation has experienced uh, the, the, the passing of some of these signs. And the truth is, is that uh, we, cannot ev- we cannot ever know when Jesus will return. So we have to begin to ask a different question. But I would argue that the attitude here, you know, every generation thinking that they would be the last generation and, and see the, the return of Christ, I think that that is such a healthy attitude to adopt. I think that just as we talked about last week, how um, that we, we talked about how the, the little horn that arose right from the uh, from the from the fourth beast and how Antiochus and Rome and, and events of the future, none of these signs and symbols and numbers really seem to align. So it opens up the possibility that maybe Daniel is referring to all future generations. Maybe it's a message for all of God's people to follow after him. And I think that it's true. I think that, I think that it's healthy to have this attitude and this mindset that Christ could come at any minute. And I think that that's what Jesus was trying to let his disciples know about in Matthew chapter 25, that Jesus could return at any moment. Your generation could be the generation that sees the second coming of Christ. So be ready, be faithful, be on the lookout. And, and live the way that you ought to live. So we have to ask a different question, don't we? We can't keep asking, is this it? Am I the generation that's going to see the return of Christ? Because the truth is that we can never know. We don't know. Jesus says we don't know. When will the end come? That's the wrong question to ask. The right question, the question that we should be asking, is how should I live my life as I wait for Jesus to return? How should I ought to live? And Second Peter answers this question. 2 Peter 3, verse 10 through 12. If you have your Bibles or your, or your app, your Bible app, you can turn there with me. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12. It says, like, it says it like this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Well, thank you, Peter, for asking that very appropriate question. And then he answers the question. How thoughtful of him. He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 repeats this warning by saying that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Has anybody ever been robbed at night before? My family, we were, we were almost robbed at night. We were living in Squim at the time, and my mom heard a car door shut in our driveway. We lived in the country, and she thought she saw the truck rolling back and thought that maybe it was a really windy night. She thought that the wind might be pushing it backwards. Maybe we left it in neutral. And she runs out there, and she sees that there's two men in the truck, and they're trying to wheel the truck out of the driveway. And she lets off a few words that I've never heard my mom say before. She lets off a few choice words right there, and she's frozen in her steps. And my dad hears my mom screaming. My dad's in his, his tidy whities He's in his underwear. And he runs out there in the truck in his underwear, and he's chasing these guys off. And they run down a trail. My dad chases them down the trail. And you've got to ask my dad about the details, because I didn't get his permission to tell this story. He's, 
He's, in, he's with the kids right now in, in the kids' ministry. But, but, but the point is, is if we knew that the thieves were coming, we would have stayed awake, wouldn't we? We would have been watchful. We would have been waiting for them to come. But we can't know when Jesus is coming back. So we have to stop putting energy and trying to figure that all out. But we are given the ability to recognize signs and indications of the end times. And I think that most people would agree that we are getting close to the return of Jesus. Let me just put it this way. We're closer today than we were yesterday. Okay? So, so knowing that, how ought we to live? How should we live our lives from 2 Peter, the first thing that we should do, I've got a few points here. The first thing that Peter says is we should live holy. Live holy. Now, holy doesn't mean perfect. Holy does not mean perfect. Holy means set apart. It means to be separate. It's hagios in the Greek. It literally means don't be like the world. To be unlike the world. We've got to be in the world without being of the world. We've got to be in culture without culture permeating us. We've got to influence the culture and not reflect what the culture is doing. I think Daniel is one of the greatest examples of what influencing culture looked like without being tainted by it. Throughout the series we've watched is Daniel and his friends stood by their convictions as they were faced with execution, as they were faced with threats and death and the fiery furnace and the lion's den. And they were told to eat the king's food, but they didn't eat the king's food. They didn't bow down to idols despite being sentenced to a fiery furnace. They didn't stop praying and seeking God even when it was forbidden and he was threatened to be thrown in a lion's den. And as a result of being separate from the world, they thrived in Babylon. They thrived. Daniel was appointed as one of the the highest wise men of the king's court. And and he was given access to all the rulers of Babylon. They thrived in Babylon. The Lord blessed their life because they, they held to their convictions. Oftentimes we think, well, if I hold to my convictions, I better expect a terrible life, right? And just just waiting for the Lord to come because living here on earth is going to be terrible until the Lord comes again. But if we look at the life of Daniel, we see that you can thrive in your culture. You can thrive in society and still live by your convictions. Why? Because we serve a God who protects us and blesses our life when we're faithful to him. Where, did they face persecution? Absolutely. But was Jesus with them through every persecution? Absolutely. Jesus was with them in the fire. Jesus was with Daniel in the lion's den. Does your life look different from your friends who don't know God? Do you have friends who don't know God? You should. Because if you don't, who is going to see you being holy? Who's going to witness you being unlike the world? The law required perfection. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the law from the Lord, the the Lord, you know, it's interesting because we look at what God asked the Israelites to do, God wanted Israel to come up to the mountain. Not just Moses. God wanted all of the people to come and experience him, to see him, to feel him, to be there on the mountain with him. But what did the people do? The people saw the the lightning and the thunder and the clouds and the smoke coming from the top, and they were terrified. And they looked at Moses and said, we're not going up there. 
You go up there and tell us what he says. So Moses alone went up to the mountain, and that was never God's intention. God wanted all the people to come to him and have a relationship. But as a result, the Lord said, okay, I wanted relationship, but now we're going to have law. And God sent the law back down the mountain with Moses and said, this is how you have to live your life. If you want a relationship with me, if you want to be in right standing with God, you have to uphold all of these things. The law required perfection. You have to be perfect in order to have right standing with God. But God, in his wisdom, knew that that just wasn't possible. There were over 600 laws in the Old Testament, and to uphold every single one of them would have been impossible. So God said, okay, I'm going to make a way for my people to have right standing with me, despite their imperfection. And he set up the act of of sacrificial offerings that the people of God could come and offer a sacrifice, an innocent lamb or a bull or a ram, whatever it was, and, and they could be atoned for, their sin could be atoned for, and they could be forgiven and have right standing with God. And Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice who died on the cross. He forgave our sins. And now we don't have to be perfect. We can have that relationship that God so desired for all of his people to have. We don't need to be perfect. We need to be set apart. We need to be unlike the world. That's what being holy means is don't act like the world. You don't have to strive to be perfect. Perfection drives some of us mad. It drives some of us insane because it's, it's, when you strive for perfection, you're unable to, to ask for help because asking for help would be admitting that you're not perfect, right? You're unable to seek forgiveness because asking for forgiveness would be admitting that, that you need forgiveness, that you were imperfect, that you messed up, right? Perfection drives some of us mad, but God made a way. We don't have to be perfect. He wants us to be set apart. And he wants us to live life among those who don't know God Uh, showing them what it looks like to be imperfect but still be set apart for God's purpose in his grace and in his love for us. We're supposed to display that to the rest of the world. Live holy. Second Peter also says to look forward. Look forward to the day of the Lord, to the coming of the day of the Lord. Don't look behind at the mistakes of your past. And don't look beside you comparing yourself to others and how they're racing and how they're living their lives. But look forward with your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't look beside you. Let's talk about looking beside you and what that, what that looks like sometimes for us today. Don't look beside you. 1 Corinthians 9.24 says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Olympian runners will tell you that there are disadvantages to looking over your shoulder and seeing where all the other athletes are in comparison. And it's not so much a physical disadvantage that, that, that it slows you down. It's not so much that it's that, but it's a mental disadvantage. Because as you're running, if you're checking to see if, how far ahead you are, you're no longer running to win. You're running so that you don't lose. And you forget the purpose of why you're running. Most Olympians will tell you that the, the reason that they started uh, becoming an athlete in the first place, or the reason they started in the Olympics, wasn't because they wanted the gold, although it is a prize to be won, but because they love running. They love to compete. They love the thrill of it. It gives them life. The difference is that running to avoid losing strips the athlete of enjoyment and pleasure of running. 
Think about how it affects runners' mentality when they look back and they see someone catching up to them and that suddenly their confidence is shaken and paranoia sets in. They're worried about what the other people are doing beside of them instead of worrying about just running their race, fixing their eyes on the prize and running straight, running forward. We weren't created to run with our eyes set on what everyone else is doing. We're created to run with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And the minute we turn our eyes to compare ourselves to other people, we become discouraged by what they have and what we lack. And we lose sight of the finish line. I do this all the time. As a pastor with, with, with online church now, anybody can watch anybody's church. You know, I, I, there used to be a day where the only person that a pastor had to compare himself with was the other pastor down the street. Right, how big is his church? How many, you know, what's he doing? What's his lights look like? How, what's his sound system? How many people has he got coming? And now today we can get online and we can compare ourselves to whoever else in the world. It's a struggle. And sometimes you see people from your church that Sunday morning sitting in the crowd. They're listening to your message. And later that afternoon they post a quote from another message from another pastor in a city on the other side of the country. And you're like, what? What's happening? What's happening? Did I not say anything tweetable? Did I not say anything postable? Right? And we compare ourselves. Yeah, pray for me. I'm str- here's my insecurities coming out. We compare ourselves. Not, pastors aren't the only people that do this, but we compare ourselves with physical attributes of other people, with, with, with gifts and talents and abilities that other people have, with possessions that other people have, material things. Oh, they've got a nice house. They've got a nice boat. We, we look around. We look beside ourselves at what everybody else is doing, and we lose sight that we are in a race, that we are supposed to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We are made to stay in our lane. Know what God has called you to do and stay in your lane. You're not meant to run somebody else's race. You have to run your race. You have to be you. You have to be the person that God has called you to be. Don't look beside you. And don't look behind you. We look at our past. We look at our mistakes. We live in shame. Oh, I did this. I, 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 I'm a product of sin. I messed up. God, you can never use me anymore. Jesus didn't choose people based on their past. He didn't define He doesn't define you by your past. He enlisted a tax collector, uneducated fishermen, women with low social status at the time. Why? Because Jesus doesn't look for the best person. He draws out the best in every person. He doesn't call the qualified. Some of you heard this. He doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. That Jesus doesn't look for the best individual. Who is society going to look at and think, that's the guy. Oh, he's the man. No, Jesus sees what's inside of you, and he draws out the best in every single person. He just says, come follow me, run your race, and I'll run with you. I'll draw out the best in you. I'll make it so that your life can be used to the fullest. Every ounce of you will be used by me. All the great things that I put in there, I can draw out. Don't look beside you. Don't look behind you, but look forward. Look forward at the things that God has for your life. Stay in your lane. Appreciate the gifts and the talents that God has given you. And lastly, we are to love greatly. Love greatly. After Jesus answered the question that his disciples had in Matthew chapter 24, when his Disciples asked about what are the signs of the end times. He he answers them. But in the very next chapter, Jesus describes three parables 
about what the end would look like. And the first parable is the parable of the ten virgins. And uh, many of you probably know this parable where there were ten virgins, five wise and, and five foolish, and, and they fell asleep. Uh, and, uh, well, before that, the, the wise virgins went out, virgins went out and they, they got oil for their lamps, where the foolish ones didn't. And they all fell asleep, and somebody called out, the, the master is coming, He's, the bridegroom is coming back. And, and so the, the, the wise virgins got up, and uh, they started making their way to where the master would be, and the, the foolish ones said, well, give us some of your oil, or our lamps will burn out. And the wise one said, no, then there won't be enough oil for all of us. Instead, go and buy some oil from those who sell oil. And as those foolish virgins were buying oil, the bridegroom returned. The master returned right there. And so the message behind it is that we're supposed to stay ready. We're supposed to stay vigilant, that he could come at any time. The second parable that he tells is about, I know I'm whipping through these parables, but the second one is, is about the, the talents, how we gave you know, this person one talent, he gave this person five talents, and he gave this person ten talents. And, and the message behind this parable is that we are to use the resources that God has given us. If we're faithful with little in our life, we will be given more. People are asking God, Lord, I want to bring thousands of people to Jesus. Fill, I want to fill stadiums for you, Jesus. At least this is what pastors are saying, right? This is what, this is what the Lord, this is, this is what I say to the Lord at times. God, I want to fill stadiums full of people. I want to bring thousands of people to Jesus. And I want to, I want to preach the word to hundreds of thousands of people. But then when I'm in Safeway, and the Lord says, just go talk to that one person. Tell them about me. And I go, oh, I don't have time today, Jesus. I don't, I'm not sure if I can fit that into my schedule. Jesus is saying, if you can't be faithful with the one that I give you, how are you going to be faithful with the thousands? If you can't be faithful with what I've given you, how are you going to be faithful with more? So many people say, oh, if the Lord, if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would be the most generous person. I would give away so much money to the church and to charities, and I would do this, and I would build this for this person, I'd get this for this person. But then the Lord says, all I want is your 10%. Would you just be faithful with the little bit that you have and just give me what you have? Oh, I just can't afford it right now. I'm just, I'm just if you want to be blessed with more, you have to be faithful with, with what you have. Generosity comes from the heart. It doesn't come with what is in your bank account. Think of the woman that Jesus talked about who had just a few pennies. She had a couple pennies and she gave everything that she had. She didn't say, well, these are, this is all that I have, right? I can't afford to give to the Lord, right? No, Jesus said, give me what little you have, and I will give you more. Because when you show the Lord that you can be faithful what he's given you, he gives you more because he knows that you're going to bless the world around you. And says, this is somebody who can distribute the blessings that I give them, who is good at giving away the things that I give them. And so the Lord blesses us when we're generous, and he blesses us when we're faithful with the little things. But then Jesus tells this parable about the sheep and the goats. And he says, in the end, in the, in the last days, I will take the sheep with the goats and I will separate them. And, 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 I, and I will bring the righteous to me. And this is what he says in Matthew 25, verse 37. The king will say, the king will say come enter into my righteous for, for, for you, you. I was hungry and you fed me and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And in verse 37... Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? 
or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and we clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Time is short. We're coming to the end. We are coming to the end of it. But did you catch that in 2 Peter? In 2 Peter 3.12, it said that you can actually speed the coming of the day of the Lord. Did anybody catch that? As you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed its coming, it means that you can actively participate in when Jesus comes back. You have active participation. The Lord is asking us to do our part. He's saying, if you feed those who are hungry, if you give a drink to those who are thirsty, if you visit those in prison, if you do the things for, the, for my people, then you're doing it for me. And then he'll look at the other people, at the unrighteous, and they'll say, well, you're, King, when, when did we see you thirsty and not give you something to drink? When did we see you hungry and not give you some food? When did we see you in prison and not go visit you? And the king will reply, reply them, because you didn't do it to the least of these. You didn't do it to me. God is asking us to love greatly, to love like nobody else is loving, as his holy people, set apart, doing things on this earth that nobody else can do because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. God is calling us to love greatly, to be his people to those in need in our communities. But first, we have to open up our eyes. We have to look for those people. We can't wait for them to wander through the front door of our church, right? But instead, we open up our eyes to the needs of our community, to those people in our life, and we're faithful when God calls us to go and to be kind and to love the people in need, despite what they believe. They might be on the opposite end of the political spectrum. They might believe something completely different than what you believe, but God is asking us to love greatly. Can we stand together, church? How should I live? Live holy. Look forward. Don't look beside you. Don't look behind you. Look forward and love greatly. I'm going to ask the prayer teams to come forward. If Jethro and Cheryl and the Darts and the Bakers, if you want to come forward. We're going to pray, and and if you want continued prayer after we close today, please come up and, and ask for prayer from one of these amazing men and women of God and but I want, I want to ask the Lord for him to, as, as a church, to ready us. Because I want to be a church that is ready for his coming. I want Jesus to return and see his bride ready. Not with curlers up in her hair. Now, oh, you caught me on a bad day. I'm not ready. No, but Jesus is coming for a bride who is ready. Who is ready for the bridegroom. Jesus, we... God, we thank you that today as we read your word, your, your truth is being revealed to our hearts. And I pray, God, that we would be able to live this out. It's one thing to hear it at church. It's another thing to, like I said, be at Safeway or be, at, be wherever, God, and, and for you to ask us to do something. Remind us that every little thing is something that we're doing for you, Jesus. God, I pray that you would renew us. You would make us ready. God, I pray that you would strip away all those things that are distracting us.
all the material things, all the worries, all the anxiety, all the things that we live in day in, day out, that keep our attention off of you. Get rid of those things in our life. God, I pray that as a church, we would be kind to one another. We would be patient with one another. God, we would love one another. Even though we don't all believe the same thing, even though we don't uh, all agree sometimes, but Father, we would be united under the umbrella of Jesus Christ, knowing that we are your body. We are your church. We are your bride, and you're coming for us, Jesus. God, we give this day to you. God, we give our lives to you. We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Like I said, if you'd like prayer, please come forward. And God bless you. We'll see you next week. Remember, next week is Compassion Sunday, so be praying about whether God is asking you to sponsor a child.